Hello and welcome to Other Voices, Other Choices. I'm Wilton Vaught, producer and host of the show. This is podcast number nine in the series and is the second half of an event which took place in Washington, D.C. on April 4, 2017, entitled Remembering Past Wars and Preventing the Next. You can find a video of the entire event on my blog, OtherVoicesOtherChoices.com, and at the YouTube channel of the same name. You can find the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. The moderator for this event was David Swanson of World Beyond War. It's his voice you will hear next. We are very fortunate to have Maria Santelli, who is going to introduce a couple of current conscientious objectors. Conscientious objection was a huge part of resistance to World War I and has been badly needed ever since. Maria Santelli. Thank you, David, for the kind introduction. It is about the people that we serve. We do this every day because we stand on the shoulders of people like those 100 years ago who objected in great danger to their own lives. And we stand behind the young people like these two gentlemen you'll meet in a little bit who really are doing the heavy lifting today. We're just the support. Folks call us for help with their conscientious objection, with their discharges from the military these days, and and they, they often will thank us so humbly and so profusely, and we feel humbled, I think. I think we feel a little bit like, hey, wait a minute. We are just standing behind you. It is really our privilege and our honor to support people who stand up and say no, as many, many people in World War I did. So on November 11th, 1918, fighting ceased, and what was called the Great War at that time came to an end. Armistice Day was intended to be marked every year in honor of world peace. It was the war to end all wars, but of course it didn't. And for the last century, we have moved forward in almost a continuous state of war to this day. That November 11th holiday was edited to reflect this common state of perpetual war in 1954, and we now know it as Veterans Day, meant to keep our focus on the war and the warrior, overshadowing and perhaps even erasing the promise of world peace and the experience of conscientious objectors in World War I. After that war ended, after the First World War ended, there was some debate on whether the horrifying accounts of the brutal treatment of the men who refused to kill were real. The talking point at that time was that conscientious objectors were treated with leniency, but the truth was recorded in letters, diaries, and family and community histories. It was also entered into the congressional record on March 4, 1919, in testimony provided by the National Civil Liberties Bureau. Quote, at the United States disciplinary barracks at Alcatraz Island, Alcatraz, that's where we kept our men who refused to kill other people, four religious objectors, three Hoffer brothers and Jacob Whipp, were placed in a perfectly dark dungeon where water seeped in from the sea, their outer clothing removed, and where they were fed only small amounts of bread and water. At the end of the fifth day, they were removed by recommendation of the medical examiner and placed in isolation. Later, they were transferred to Fort Leavenworth. Two of those brothers died of pneumonia within 10 days of their arrival. 
the body of one of these men was sent home dressed in the uniform of the United States Army, although he had gone to prison because of his refusal to wear that very uniform. It eventually became clear to their jailers that no amount of abuse, torture, humiliation, or ridicule could force the conscientious objectors to compromise their beliefs in any way. So why go to such lengths to punish a person who will not fight? Why try to coerce a person into denying their most fundamental values and principles? The answer is that the violence of war is not natural for us. It must be taught and it must be continually reinforced. The inevitability of violence and injustice is a myth, a myth that persists at the hands of media and government who choose to strengthen their own influence and harden their own power by sowing fear and division among our communities. It is a myth that is reinforced subtly, like by changing the name and purpose of a federal holiday, and it is a myth that is reinforced aggressively by drill sergeants. In our work at the Center on Conscience and War, the stories of the conscientious objectors that we work with serve as daily reminders and individual case studies that prove that humanity is naturally predisposed to peace. Our conscience tells us that cooperation with one another is right and that violence and injustice against one another is wrong. In a time when it feels like the military and the culture of violence have colonized so much of our lives, our land, our economy, our culture, and in so many cases, even our churches, there is one part of us that cannot be colonized, at least not permanently, and that is the conscience. And that fact poses a great threat to the ability to make and perpetuate war. Presbyterian minister and conscientious objector Norman Thomas wrote about the objectors in World War I. Quote, this insignificant fraction of the youth of America challenged the power of the state when it was mightiest and the philosophy of war when it was most pervasive. They said, you may kill us, but you can't make us fight against our will. They said it not as men who court martyrdom, but as men who serve principle not as those who despised the state, but as those who refused to make it God. If enough of them had said that thing in every land, there would have been no war. And that is the thing that the military and the state know very well. And it is evident in the lengths that they go to to try to make our kids into killers. Basic military training is a science that has been expressly designed to circumvent the human conscience, to teach a soldier to kill by rote, reflexively, without thinking, and without filtering through the conscience. We have to be programmed to kill. If it was natural, it would come easy for us, it would be good for us, and we would thrive after engaging in it. But that's not the truth. The hundreds of thousands of veterans that we know are suffering from the wounds of moral injury, wounds to the soul caused by a transgression against the conscience, are proof of our tragic misunderstanding of our own nature. With deep gratitude to the sacrifices made by the conscientious objectors of a century ago, the CEOs of today don't have to choose between violating their orders or violating their conscience. They have a third choice, applying for discharge, a choice that allows them to follow their conscience and seek justice. 
in the years just preceding the U.S. entry to World War II. That's when our organization was founded, and we worked to influence that generation's draft to include real, enforceable protections for conscientious objectors. There would be no more court-martials, there would be no more torture, although the emotional and sometimes physical abuse does continue of people who resist. During the draft years from World War II and forward, COs could perform civilian service instead of being forced to perform support roles for war or go to jail. Pentagon policy modeled after that 1940 draft law still allows modern COs in our all-recruited military to legally apply for discharge as conscientious objectors. And many individuals do just that, especially now when even the lowest ranking private can easily observe that we are seeing a clear move toward an even more over-militarized approach to foreign policy than the United States already over-militarized approach to foreign policy. In our organization, between 2015 and 2016, we experienced a 62% increase in the number of conscientious objector cases that we work with. Those people are looking to and finding a way to follow their conscience, a way to find a new path away from militarism and violence, the way these two gentlemen in our audience today have done. And I wanna now pass the torch over to them. I want you to meet and hear the stories of two courageous young folks. We have Nolan Fontaine, who was a soldier in the Pennsylvania Army National Guard, and Jared Grammel, who was in the Air Force, and both of them are conscientious objectors to war. I want to invite them to come on up <laughs> and share their stories with you. And thank you so much for your time tonight. So as always, uh, Maria gave a really good introduction. My name is Jared. I was in the Air Force for about five years. I was discharged in 2015. Now I'm lucky enough to be able to go to school here in D.C. And I'm with CCW on their board. And I'm also with the D.C. chapter of Veterans for Peace. Like she said, uh, COs in World War I suffered greatly under their persecution. Like she mentioned, they were tortured. I think about two dozen of them died actually in prisons. And because of their sacrifice, because of them unrelentingly refusing to give up their moral code, they paved the way for the next generation of COs to be treated much better. And today, we have a pretty good way of submitting our application and declaring our CO status. It's still not a very popular thing, for sure. My struggle was about 15 months from the minute that I declared to my officers that I was a CO, and they did not take it very well. I was a newspaper editor at the time, and they were not pleased that I had suddenly decided that this was uh, no longer morally acceptable. Um, so I definitely faced some harassment, but nothing like the World War I COs, and it, it is definitely because of their sacrifice that I was able to just go through the paperwork and have a much easier time. There was a lot of really great things said here, especially about the link between racism and war, capitalism and war. One of the things that I really draw a lot from is the legacy of the socialists, anarchists, and especially some of those peace churches in World War I, because if you look at the history, there's a lot of really great stories. I think they mentioned Eugene Debs and, and his struggle. There was a man named Charles Schneck, and he was actually put in jail for trying to put out anti-draft notices. These people were also incredibly brave in standing up against the war machine. And I think that learning their stories, which I don't think we do enough of in history, I think oftentimes we hear the stories of the brave generals and, and the brave soldiers who have the Medal of Honor 
and whatnot. And, and that is part of history. But the part of history that we really should learn about is the people who resisted the power structures and who really stood up for making this country a better place and at least trying to stand up against injustice. And I think that's the most important thing that we can learn from the Water One COs is that they saw this as unjust and they sometimes gave their lives in, in brutal conditions to make it known that this was unacceptable. And so, again, I think the one thing to take away from this is that the legacy of World War One COs really made it clear that putting them in prisons and torturing them was the wrong way to go about this and that we should celebrate them. And I think on this 100th anniversary, I think that's the one thing that we should do is celebrate their stand for conscience. Thanks again. My name is Nolan Fontaine. I was a member of the U.S. Army Reserves and the PA National Guard uh, from 2003 to 2007. I'm currently here in the DMV. Um, I'm also a, a board member for CCW, Center for Consciousness and War. And I'm also a member of Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated, fraternity of fellow conscientious objector John Lewis and brother Dr. Huey P. Newton. I guess I could start during when I experienced my first moksha or enlightenment of conscientious, conscientious objection. 2005, I was drafted for Hurricane Katrina as a part of the PA Guard because, of course, during that time, the Louisiana National Guard was fighting in Iraq. Go figure. So we were called up. During that time, I was a sophomore at Penn State. We went to Katrina, and we actually got extended for Hurricane Rita. But during that time, I had a lot of things that were running through my head. Of course, the race question was something that was very prominent to me. During that time, you had a lot of things that were going on. For instance, Kanye said, George Bush doesn't care about black people. So going down there with that mindset, I kind of had the idea that you know we were going to help. We were going to assist in rebuilding and things of that nature. Not too quite. Um, so during my time down there, we did a lot of assistance, aid relief, giving out water, giving out MREs, meals ready to eat for our army folks in the audience, tarps and things of that nature to all the individuals. But one thing I noticed was this collectiveness amongst all different races and amongst all different class lines. Uh, we had people come in to pick up water, not only in Pintos, um, but also in Porsches. And that really struck me. The one thing I noticed after leaving Katrina is, you know, for me, shifting more of, from this race question to more of this class question because it really enlightened in me that, you know, this is a class, it was a class issue. Uh, so much so that I noticed various things after I left. For instance, the Danza Bridge shooting, which was just a total act of state violence. Martial law still you know, ensued after we left uh, New Orleans and Louisiana. And then, of course, as Moran and I were just talking about earlier, I had no idea that our current vice president was on the Republican Study Committee for pro-free market ideas for responding to Hurricane Katrina and high gas prices. If you want to find out more about that, feel free to go to Raw Story. And it's actually a piece written by Naomi Klein that was very interesting on that. And the most interesting thing that I found out actually prior to leaving, Halliburton actually gave us 
um, a letter thanking us for our service. At that time, 21-year-old Nolan had no idea why we were receiving that letter. Um, but given the media and everything and the different documentaries that talk about the levees actually being broken to you know, save different types of uh, increased wealth for some investors, we can kind of put the piece of the puzzle together on what that may have meant. So what does that mean? Ultimately, today, in this current historical moment, man, with the current proposed $54 billion that's being proposed for uh, military procurement and increase in the budget, it's pretty safe to say that state violence is here and you know, repression and disenfranchisement for all individuals, no matter what race or what class, is pretty much gonna be on steroids. Um, the second thing is that corporate wars will pretty much dominate, not only abroad, but also here. So whether you're talking about Vietnam and going to war for rubber, or whether you're talking about the Gulf War, or war on Afghanistan, going to war for poppy, oil, or whether you're talking right about right here in South Dakota, going to war for land and oil. It's pretty much here. So what does that mean for us? Um, lastly, is basically, you know, we just need to create a broad-based movement um, and also honor our fellow conscientious objectors because it's not an easy process, but I'm glad to be surrounded by individuals that care about me, that value me, um, not only for my productive and reproductive forces, but for me and my morals and my values. Um, so it's good to be around CCW family and it's so glad to see all you guys out tonight for such a noble cause. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah, I, I love going to places like London, England, where they have monuments honoring conscientious objectors. I think this town could use one. Uh, instead, they're working on a, a World War I monument uh, and an Eisenhower monument and, you know, 18 other war monuments to add to the collection here. I'm sorry, my name again is David Swanson. I'm going to say a, a few words and then we're going to open this up to questions for everybody who's up here. The calculations that we sometimes do about this budget and about recent wars, you know, they did these after World War I as well. And I, I should have looked up the statistics, but it was dramatic things like could have built a house for every person on earth. And, and one complaint was, what did we get out of it? We got out of it the flu epidemic and prohibition. Nothing more. But I think... We got many, many serious things out of World War I, including the permanent military-industrial complex and the taxes and expenses to go with it, including the whole propaganda model that has been used to sell U.S. wars ever since. You guys know who the four-minute men were? It took them four minutes to change a reel in a movie theater. So they filled those four minutes by having some jerk get up and tell you how evil the Germans were and how important it was that you pick up a gun and start killing people. And the use of religion was there, the racism that, with Germans being another race, the, the fear-mongering, the demonization, the, the glorification of violence, the strategic narrowing of the options, so your only choice is, is violence. You know, everything that I wrote about in my book, War is a Lie, was to be found there in that propaganda campaign that has been refined and improved and advanced ever since. But essentially it was there with World War I. We also got as uh, 
Michael mentioned uh, at the start this evening, we got this package of attacks on civil liberties that come with all of these wars for freedom. The targeting of dissent, the secrecy that's now used as a justification for everything in the U.S. government, the Espionage Act that President Obama was so fond of using against whistleblowers, and the groups that push back, the ACLU and these organizations that push back on civil liberties, but never on war and never on the military spending that creates the problems, they come out of World War I. The carving up of the Middle East for British and French and later U.S. imperial interests that has done such wonders of good over the past 100 years. World War I. Perhaps it's a little obvious, but the biggest and worst thing uh, that we got out of World War I was, of course, World War II. And that military-industrial complex that came out of World War I went right on, arming both sides of the future wars. And you, you also got the advantages for veterans after World War II, which, which came out of the activism of the veterans of World War I, the bonus army that, that marched on this town after World War I and was attacked with chemical weapons by the future heroes of World War II. And this is why veterans after World War II were treated a little better, uh, because they didn't want that again not because it was a better war. I'm reading a book about, about weapons dealing and reading about this character named Basil Zaharoff, who was one of the early big weapons dealers. Uh, and in the Balkans, where that assassination happened that was the trigger for World War I, in the decades leading up, violence was kept stirred up in that region by these weapons dealers who would bribe editors to, to push for war, who would bribe border guards to fire shots, who would bribe governments to, to buy weapons. You know, so many weapons for the past hundred years have been bought not because anybody wanted them, not because any e evil ideology or warmongering enterprise demanded them, but because somebody was getting bribed and it was profitable. You know, this question of which comes first, the weapons or the wars, it is the weapons. It is the weapons that come first. And we, we know this with the almost open conversation in this town now about what the hostility toward Russia is all about. You know, they just almost openly admit that it's about profit. Whereas after World War I, you couldn't say that in public. I mean, the idea of profiting from war was, was shameful in the decades that followed World War I. And the reason that this wonderful thing is happening at the United Nations with these meetings last week that Reiner mentioned, uh, sitting down in an open public forum with 130-some countries ready to ban nuclear weapons. Why is that possible? Why are people saying, this is what I've wanted the UN to look like since it was created, and it never has up until now? Because the big five permanent members of the security complex, plus Germany, aren't there. <laughs> They're out of that picture. You know, and the, these are the arms dealers of the world. These are the weapons dealers that arm Africa. And we, we think of Africa, or we think of the Middle East, we think of these regions as being inherently violent. Well, they wouldn't be inherently violent with weapons of war if somebody wasn't pushing those weapons of war on them. They aren't made there. They're made here, first and foremost, in the United States, uh, which also arms both sides of most current conflicts. 
I think that public referendum idea that the peace movement pushed that Michael talked about just before World War I and that was almost put into U.S. law in the decades that followed World War I was a wonderful idea then and is a wonderful idea now. And this institute at the University of Maryland that showed people what the current federal budget is and then asked them what would you do with it because you can't just poll the US public on the budget. They don't have a foggiest idea what it looks like now. But showed them what it is and said, what do you want to do? The vast majority of this incredibly ill-informed, poorly educated public wanted to take 40 to $50 billion out of the military. Whereas Trump's budget wants to do the exact opposite. Right? So there's actually a 90-some billion dollar gap between what the public would do if you let a representative group of the public govern and, and call it something like, I don't know, democracy, and what Trump wants to do. And then, of course, what Congress will do if we don't stop them, which is go half or two-thirds of the way toward what Trump wants to do. The other thing we got out of World War I that was absolutely wonderful and has to be revived was an incredibly powerful peace movement in the years after World War I. When the people who believed the you know, war to end all wars nonsense and the people who didn't were all collectively agreed on, let's make it true now. Let's end all wars. Let's be done with this. And you, know, you had movements for disarmament that, that failed dramatically. You had the push for the League of Nations that, of course, in this country failed dramatically. You had efforts at building better relationships uh, among the nations that generally failed. But you also had this push that came from a, a, a lawyer in Chicago initially and got all the peace groups around it to, to ban war. Because up through World War I, wars weren't illegal. They were, they were thought of as like the weather. They just sort of happened. And after World War I, this idea was, well, you know, by itself it won't end wars, but let's start by drawing a line and saying war is illegal. We ban dueling. We didn't ban just aggressive dueling and keep humanitarian dueling. We, you know, we said, this is barbaric. Let's be done with it. Well, let's ban war for group disputes as we've banned dueling for individual disputes. Let's be done with it. And, and so they did, and they created the Kellogg-Briand Pact, which was ratified by the United States Senate the day after Martin Luther King Jr. was born in 1929. So for all of Dr. King's life, except when he was less than one day old, war was illegal. And it has been illegal ever since. And looking back at the peace movement and the strength and the moral arguments and the, and the organizing that it did in those days is of even more value than pointing out the existence of laws that are on our side. You're listening to Other Voices, Other Choices, podcast number nine. This episode is Remembering Past Wars and Preventing the Next, part two, and is the second half of an event which took place in Washington, D.C. on April 4, 2017. You can find a video of the entire event on my blog, OtherVoicesOtherChoices.com, and at the YouTube channel of the same name. You can find the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. The moderator for this event was David Swanson of World Beyond War. I was looking at Martin Luther King's speech as well and what people have said. And 
I don't know if you remember a guy named Jay Johnson who uh, was at Homeland Security and then he was a lawyer at the Pentagon while Obama was president. And he came out and told us that now, today, if Martin Luther King were alive, he would support all the U.S. wars, right? But, and apparently believed this and apparently worked among people who believed this, right? And I looked at, at James Mattis, the Secretary of So-Called Defense now, who gave a speech on a Martin Luther King holiday a couple of months ago who said nothing about Dr. King opposing wars, of course, you know, he's just a civil rights guy, he, you know, he has nothing to do with opposing wars, nobody, you know, has to be told that, but said, when it comes to civil rights, the U.S. military was out ahead of the civil rights movement, because you just look back to the Lewis and Clark trip across to scout out genocide across the country, and they allowed a slave they had brought along to have a vote on whether to proceed across some river. So don't talk to us about civil rights. You know, it, this is the climate we're up against. You know, This is the culture that we have to reintroduce these ideas from this brilliant speech of 50 years ago into. Yesterday was also the anniversary of something done in 1948 called the Marshall Plan, which cost a tiny fraction of what it cost the United States to continue killing people and producing famines and starvation and making everything worse and making this country hated around the world. It was a minimal cost. But the idea was not only prosecute war as a crime because of the Kellogg-Briand Pact, you know, one-sidedly just prosecute the losers, but also don't do what was done after World War I in terms of intentionally beating the hell out of the losing country in hopes of producing another world war. Let's try something different, right? This is an idea that we have to bring back today. And when we start looking at what it costs to do everything wrong, to make everything worse, you know, the extreme materialism, the extreme inequality we heard about of the, the concentration of wealth among the billionaires and so forth is nothing. It's a drop in the bucket compared to the money spent on the military year after year after year with the United States, yes, spending over 10 times what Russia is spending on the military and Russia decreasing it as part of its sneaky evil plot to dominate the world. Right? And it would cost tens of billions to end starvation, to end diseases, to end the lack of clean drinking water. Right? So it is this financial expense that kills more than any weapon, more than any war. Uh, it is a financial drain. This enterprise is the biggest destroyer of human rights, the biggest eroder of civil liberties, the biggest demolisher of the natural environment, of our air, of our earth, of our water. And there are alternatives to it that have been developed over the past 100 years and over the past 50 years and just in recent years that we don't need systems of war. We don't need structures of violence to have a structure of laws and economics and culture that handles disputes by other means. And so World Beyond War tries to look at how we can educate and organize and move for things like this ban on nuclear weapons that take us in a direction that we depict for people. Because I think people in the United States who are told so much how their country is the greatest on earth and the richest and the best and the strongest don't really understand that there are places on earth where health care is a right and retirement is a right and vacation is a right and maternal and paternal leave and 
top quality education from preschool through college and life expectancies that exceed Americans and happiness and stability that exceed Americans. You know, I, you look at something like this power plant they just put up in Copenhagen, Denmark, where they put it as close to downtown as they could and the air coming out of it is cleaner than the other air around, they put a ski slope on top of it so you can go breathe the clean mountain air of the electricity plant and ski down it. And the thing cost about as much as an airplane that typically crashes. You know, these, this is what we choose in this country. I just came down here from New York on an Amtrak that went about 10 miles an hour and I was glad it stayed on the tracks because they had some yesterday that didn't stay on the tracks. Right? So these are the choices. We have to start imagining what we could have and what we could give the entire world for the amount of money that is being spent on the U.S. military. So we can talk about any number of in initiatives we're working on. Medea mentioned where, that World Beyond War and other groups in Code Pink are, are pushing resolutions that are getting passed in local cities. We're working on divestment campaign, on closing bases, on advancing international justice. We have an online course on war abolition that starts up on April 10th, so go to World Beyond War if you want to get in on the start of that. And the climate march, uh, which is going to be compelled to include peace, and there's going to be a peace contingent and a peace rally and a peace march that joins other marches and a unified march and a unified rally at the end, April 29th in this town. So. I would just mention one other issue that I think we really have to understand and deal with in the coming weeks and months related to the conscientious objection and resistance to drafts, and that is that the Democrats are going to keep pushing even harder in the U.S. Congress to compel every 18-year-old young woman to register for the draft like every young man has to do, and not in order to be cruel to them and force them to sign up to join a, a criminal enterprise of mass murder and risk their lives, uh, you know, but to defend their rights against the injustice, the unfairness, the discrimination against young women of not forcing them to register for the draft uh, for selective service. Uh, so we, ha we have to come up with a better understanding of what feminism is uh, and a better understanding of why the draft is not actually a good thing for the peace movement. You know, this idea, oh, we need a draft because then people will hate war. No, come on. We, we have six million dead bodies to go with that draft. We haven't had anything that bad since then. Draft, a draft is not a, a humanitarian tool. Uh, we, we need to come up with an understanding of why and how to oppose this uh, and, and to stop it uh, and, and end this idea of expanding the draft as a progressive uh, move. So with, with that, thank you all very much for coming out here and we'll take any questions you've got. I think that part of the problem with activists and organizers, I think many times we're looking for different ways to do something that's already been done um, based on our feeling that there's a lack of results, but I don't think the lack of results is because of what we are doing, if that makes sense. You know, I mean, I think that, you know, as someone who got involved in politics and the anti-Iraq war movement uh, in 2002, you know, I let a walkout from my high school of two-thirds of the people in the high school, you know what I mean? And so I'm 31, I'm a millennial. Um, all those people are against all the same wars I'm against. I mean, they're not as active on it as they were, but they weren't as active on all the other issues that we care about either. So um, I think that's one thing too. I think sometimes we maybe 
sell ourselves a little short about uh, you know not only the force and the power of our arguments, but how often that people uh, uh, do do care. And so I think that that's one piece as well. I think secondarily, we also have to deal with the fact that uh, you know to a large degree anti-war issues are written out of politics as part of a bargain by most people in the Democratic Party. And I know that people don't want to hear that, but the reality of it is, is like, you know, look, my mom is from Hampton, Virginia. Um, Bobby Scott represents Hampton, Virginia. And I remember one year she went to lobby, and she's known him since she was a little girl. Uh, she went to lobby for Upward Bound. She's the director of Upward Bound. They were trying to cut it. And he goes in their office and he says, uh, well, you know, look, I want to support you, but we got to switch this money around so that Raytheon can get something so I can't uh, go for the budget increase to educate people who never would have done it. Now, it's not that Bobby Scott necessarily loves Raytheon, he loves the money they give him, but the reality is, is that to become involved in, in politics means that you have to almost initially agree that U.S. empire is a good thing, that the whole America first, we're the exceptional nation, and this, that, and the third, and so we have a progressive politics that exists outside of the realm of the ability to criticize empire, and when you criticize empire, you're a terrible radical, and then you're not allowed to participate in the mainstream sort of political space. I mean, you can be for universal healthcare, but if you say, you know, remove all U.S. troops, then now that's beyond the pale. And I think we have to be very clear that there is a deliberate effort, a deliberate effort to keep these issues outside of the mainstream of the political process and to make sure that young people don't know that much about them. And I'll just say this final thing, you know, a guy on my street died in the Iraq war. Two of my friends in high school committed suicide because of what happened to them in Iraq. Uh, I know six or seven people who served and have different issues. Um, none of them went there because they thought laying down their life for service was what it was. Um, they went there because they didn't know what other options they had. They didn't know how to get to college or how to pay for it and no one in their family had ever done it before. Uh, there was a, a club, a Marine Corps club in my high school where they come there and say, you don't know what you're gonna do? Well, come to our club and we'll help you with your homework and we'll get you free SAT prep and so on and so forth. We have an economic draft in this country uh, that I think, quite frankly, drives quite a bit of this. And I think we have to talk much more seriously about how people are coerced into the military by this idea that it's a way to get ahead and get into a better station in life, and there's no other way to get there. I think that's why the vast majority of people join the military. Maybe I'm wrong, but all the people I know, that's why they join the military. Uh, when I was working my very first job in Foot Locker, one of my managers, she was in the Air Force Reserve, and she was like, you know what you got to do? You got to get in the Air Force. And she was like, oh, we, I'm a mechanic. I go up there, you know, one weekend and a month two weekends in the summer, I'm getting paid, I have health care. That's what it was all about. I never heard one pitch from the military that had anything to do with anything other than college, money, and college. I mean, that's basically how they sell it to you. Well, just to, uh, I think that uh, Bernie Sanders could have done a lot more to educate people on this issue, and I was really disappointed he didn't, because it would have been such a great thing if he was able to put the issues of uh, the war in the Pentagon into the same framework of economic inequality and the 1% and the wars, who's profiting from the wars. Um, so it's, I, I think, a reflection of what uh, Eugene was saying, that that's going a little too far for even a politician who calls himself a socialist. Uh, and I do think that when you look at the movements that have done a lot of profound educational work, like the Black Lives Matter movement, and you look at the platform, which is really an incredible platform, you see in there very clearly against war, against military-industrial complex that robs us from the, uh, the things that we need in our society, and it also talks about the issue of Palestine, calls it a genocide. So there's an example of a movement that really has done its research, its homework, its education, and is educating people on these issues. Uh, 
I'm sorry, I've got to go because I'm not feeling well. But, you know, I think we have to, you know, if you call what's happening in Palestine genocide, then what, what, what do you call, you know, uh, what the Khmer Rouge did or what the Nazis did? I mean, genocide. We, I'm, yeah, but, there's a, but, you know, uh, what's happening in Palestine is bad enough. It's an occupation. It's a brutal occupation. There have been other brutal occupations in history. Uh, Israelis are not, you know, indiscriminately killing hundreds of thousands of Palestinians. We have, we have, to, we have to understand, you know, what these words mean, okay? Um, and, and finally, also, I think it's important, yes, uh, NATO is a problem, uh, but Putin is not, you know, some kind of peace-loving guy, you know. Uh, he actually tried. He, he loves, you know, Trump. He loves Marine Le Pen. He's a right-winger who would like to set up other governments like his all over the world. Doesn't mean we have to go to war with him. Doesn't mean we should, you know, uh, uh, tell all these conspiracy theories. But to act as if, oh, Russia's, you know, just a, a wonderful, benevolent country. You know, that's, that's naive, I'm afraid to say. I, I think a number of us would like to respond to that respectfully. To suggest that NATO is doing evil that it's counterproductive, that it's making the world less safe, that it's murdering people, uh, it, you know, to interpret that as a comment on the pacifism of Vladimir Putin is, is to remain in a sort of mindset from a hundred years ago exactly. where, where geez, <laughs> to imagine that either you're for a bigger, better NATO or you believe Vladimir Putin is a pacifist and a saint is a, is a really primitive mindset that we're trying to outgrow here, right? We're, we're trying to develop beyond the thinking of 100 years ago to a different sort of thinking where we recognize that nonviolent action is not only a moral superior to war in terms of solidarity and sacrifice and adrenaline and, and commitment, uh, it, but it's more effective. It's more effective. It works better. Uh, and so to uh, David, oppose... I, I, I agree with you. The problem is not that I don't agree with you. I wish NATO didn't exist. But, but you, have to understand, you have to understand why, why people in Poland you know, support NATO, why people in Lithuania support NATO. They don't see Putin as this, you know, benevolent guy. You know, we have to listen to people like us, radicals who, do, who are opposed to war. I know, the, I know folks in Poland, in the left-wing group in Poland, they don't like NATO. They wish it didn't exist. But they also are, de are afraid of Putin dominating their country, which is not a, an irrational fear. Yeah, I don't think anybody said it, it was. Do you want to? But you know, irrationality is not an answer to the question. When someone is irrational, should you argument against that, not support his argument? But you are doing this. You know, you. when we are speaking about the problems of Europe and NATO, and we are doing this in this way, you were doing it, then we are following the politics of our government, developing confrontation between the different countries. What we need is a politics of common security, which accepts the legitimate interests of the other side as well as the legitimate interests of our side, and then negotiate together. And the negotiations are not between friends. With friends, I go to the next bar and drink something. With opposition politicians, even with so-called enemies, I have to negotiate and to find common way. This is the way we are coming to security politics in Europe. 
and to put the accusement of one side against the accusement of the other side. This is to follow the confrontation line NATO is doing like 25 years. Because we have to see the start point of the march to the east was coming from NATO. Not Russia was marching to the west. NATO was marching to the east. And let me say a second example. Yes, goes. No one knows in the state. 1919, when the Paris Charter was signed, Germany was unified. 500,000 Russian troops were going home from Russia and Poland, including 3,700 tanks and nuclear weapons. It was the biggest disarmament process Europe ever had. It was done under the KGB agent Putin who was coming at that time, first minister of defense, and then Peter, Peter the minister president, prime minister before he becomes president. So he is a partner, and the Western were negotiating with him. A lot of contracts. So this is possible, even when no one of us has to love Putin. Like, you know, it's a little bit uh, destroyed. You know, no one of us has to love Putin. But we have to accept him as a rational Russian polit politician. He is fighting for the interest of his country like we are fighting for the interest of our countries. And then we have to see what we have for common interests. And these common interests have to be the background of negotiations and cooperation. This is the alternative to confrontation. And for this, we have to stay. And it is not helpful to say someone who is criticizing NATO, you have to immediately to criticize Putin. That is not the way how cooperation will work. You know, Emma Goldman opposed the war and said that if elections ever changed anything, they would ban them. Uh, I, I think that is the proper understanding of the place of elections uh, on the, on the scale of tactics we need to be focused on, uh, they come very, very, very low. Uh, you know, we, we need to change our culture, uh, we need to use all the usual tools to do so, uh, and we need to stop fantasizing that, uh, you know, elections are the major tool in that, in that toolbox. Um, I, I wanted to try to answer the very first question we got about how do you, how do you get these good activist coalition people uh, to include peace and have anything to do with peace when they're just focused on everything else. Um, and, you know, and that's absolutely typical. Uh, and it's not typically uh, out of a, a great love for war, but avoidance of the topic entirely. Uh, and typically it does not take much to bring you know, independent individual people and local organizations around, you know, you'll, you'll never get, you know, the, the Sierra Club to oppose war, uh, but you'll get your local chapter of the Sierra Club to oppose war in 10 minutes, uh, and you get enough chapters of these bigger organizations, they can build pressure uh, from within. Um, you know, and, and I think the, the argument to young people is very, clear, but it can't be this, this selfish, you know, just tell them they could have free college, just tell them they could have this, that, and the other, which is all true and important, but also tell them that we shouldn't support mass murder and the, the imposition of starvation on countries. You know, people do care about this. There are mass movements of people in this country that are totally 
mainstream and funded you know every year with more money than the peace movement has seen in its entire existence that try to alleviate suffering and diseases and fight cancer you know and it, people are moral people don't need just a selfish argument uh, the moral arguments that were used in the peace movement in the 20s and 30s are still powerful today uh, and when you inform yourself what's happening around the country and the world and nationally, then you can take things to your, your local activists who've heard nothing about nothing and make it seem mainstream to them. Show them this statement that came out today that Medea Benjamin was talking about that has all these different movements together saying, move the money out of the military, not into it. Uh, show them the, uh, uh, the resolutions that have been passed in Montgomery County and Charlottesville, Virginia and, and other places uh, as they pass one like this. There are, there are bills in Congress, they're not going anywhere, but there are bills in Congress that seem credible and you know, official to your typical activists that would end the war in Afghanistan, that would s halt the, the arming of terrorists, that would scale back the wars in, in Syria and Iraq. You know, so organize around these things. Um, you know, how big is the secret military budget? Well, we don't know because it's secret, uh, but it is you know, obviously tens of billions uh, and, and possibly over 100 billion that needs to be added on to the over 700 billion uh, non-secret military budget and you know is probably alone more than the military budget of most countries on earth. Uh, there are only 20 countries that hit 10 billion in total military spending and nine of them are in NATO ganging up on the rest of the world. Another eight are allies and three are Russia, China and Iran that could be allies if they weren't treated so horribly. Um, but I, I, I think, you know, I, I make, the, I make the, this effort seem easier than it is if I leave out that you have to confront the Putin madness. You know, I mean, here we are having a pro-peace panel with a pro-peace audience, uh, and we have one of the panelists tell us, if you're, if you're against NATO, you must love Putin. Right? I mean, this is the, the extent that this has reached, uh, and we have to confront it as a form of collective insanity, right? not as some sort of rational argument. Right? If people want to oppose Trump, he's, he's tweeting illegal executive orders every day. He's violating the foreign and domestic emoluments clauses from day one. If people want to trash the recent election, the, the popular vote loser is in the White House. He openly intimidated voters. Uh, they, they threw people off the voting rolls in numerous states for being African American. They, you know, they fought counting paper ballots in court wherever they actually existed. I mean, there's 18 reasons why the election is illegitimate. You don't have to go with the one that has no evidence behind it and confronts a nuclear armed government and risks World War III. You don't have to choose that one, right? Uh, it's, it's a form of insanity that, that, has, to be, that has to be confronted. Um, and, and I would mention, by the way, that Raytheon's uh, stock, the highest point in history to this date for Raytheon's stock was 2013, when President Obama and the Republicans and the Democrats and every corporate media outlet said Syria was about to be bombed to hell, and we stopped it, and it didn't happen. 
you know, and we didn't reverse everything and move in a peaceful direction with positive initiatives. Uh, but, you know, they're not invincible yet. They're just very, very corrupt and getting more so. So I got involved in this work um, not only during the Vietnam War days, but also because there was a famine going on in Ethiopia, and I just hated the thought of any child dying, and I became a nutritionist, went to work for the UN, uh, and realized that a lot of the problems of poverty, extreme poverty, had to do with war and ended up doing this war work again. Now we have a situation where we as a planet are facing a catastrophic famine of 20 million people in Yemen, Somalia, and Sudan, and Nigeria. Um, this hasn't happened for decades, and we as a planet, and we as a nation in this country, we just keep talking about Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump. Donald Trump, one of the worst things that he has done is the disdain for other people, is the disdain for compassion and empathy that we need right now when people are starving. And so I just want to hold up the issue of Yemen because there, there is such a direct connection between a baby dying every 10 minutes and the war that we are supplying the weapons to, refueling the planes for, giving the logistical coordinates for. Um, and so I ask any of you that really want to do something about dying babies and a capitalist system that thrives on war and imperialism to join us, as Dick said, in doing something. We can fast on Thursday uh, in front of the White House. We also have uh, plans on, on uh, Tuesday at the Yemeni embassy. We have evening plans for people who work. Um, we are going to share the sign-up sheet that's on the table over there. So if you haven't signed up, please do, and come up afterwards and talk to us about uh, what we can do together to highlight the issue of famine and war in Yemen. Thank you. So just quickly to try to hit a few, uh, I think, I think uh, a lot to your point there, Martin, as well. I mean, I, and, and that to me is the institutional piece. I mean, the thing about also the Trump administration, they say, oh, well, he couldn't find anybody who had a different position on Russia because all the experts uh, all have the same position. I mean, I think that's one of the things that we never talk about in like the US government is that the experts are all directly wedded to the status quo and a lot of times financially dependent on them. I think the revolving door is the most underplayed issue uh, in the entire federal quote unquote bureaucracy uh, and plays a huge role. But on top of that, also the presidential advisory committees in every single department that are allegedly supposed to help the president not be captured by the bureaucracy. But of course, it's a different bureaucracy, the corporate bureaucracy, which has interests that go far and beyond the politicians. So I, I happen to agree with you. I, I think perhaps here we are uh, talking about Germany and World War I. We should think more like the Germans did in 1918 and some of their leaders like Rosa Luxemburg that maybe we should get rid of the whole thing because it's so deep in. It's not just individual people. It's the system is more deeply rooted in the soil and you have to be able to sort of uproot that, retill it and plant something totally different uh, to have a different type of society. So um, great point in general. As, as to the sanctions piece, uh, huge. Huge. Sanctions are a form of war. I think legally they are a form of war. Um, but for some reason in America, there's this fiction that's been created that sanctions are, first of all, are not a form of war and that they aren't that bad. Um, and like they always say, well, they're targeted sanctions. But if you target, if you have targeted sanctions of all the main individuals and institutions in a country, then not only is it difficult to do business, other people around the world are afraid to do business because in America they're going to say, okay, well, yeah, technically can I go to Iran and do something? Sure. But do I really want OFAC on me if I do something that's 
just slightly wrong? Of course I don't, so I'm just not gonna do it. You look at Syria right now, it's a perfect example. There's all these medicines that aren't getting in to the, the parts of Syria that are controlled by the government, the quote-unquote Assad regime. And the reason isn't because you can't send the medicines. It's because the pharmaceutical companies are like, we just don't want to get involved in that. Because if there's any problem and we make any mistake, we could end up getting fined, going to jail, or whatever. A million people died in Iraq. You remember what the Nixon administration said about Chile, make the economy scream. I mean, it's one of the most effective ways to change what a country does, because without using quote-unquote military force and you know maybe causing your own people to rise up, you still can inflict deep, deep pain and millions of deaths, and I think that's huge. Two quick points, finally. On NATO, we have to be more intelligent. And I'm sorry Michael had to leave. You know, look, if there's a conventional land war in Europe, Russia will crush the U.S. presence and the uh, European presence, which is why. All of those countries, in their actual war fighting plans, that you can read online. Say, if there was some sort of Russian invasion of Europe, uh, quote unquote, they would use tactical nuclear weapons to stop them. That is exactly why in the Brexit negotiations, Theresa May leveled a threat against the other people in Europe and said, well, we could withdraw the nuclear curtain that the UK can provide to Europe against the quote unquote Russian invasion. The only reason NATO exists is not to stop any sort of Russian invasion, it's to integrate into the command and control apparatus of the United States of America, same situation in South uh, Korea, the main it, sort of institution in society that has some sort of force and could stand up to someone to integrate their leaders and their structures into the U.S. Uh, uh, command structure so that they control those countries. It's very clear. You look at the Five Eyes spying, same thing. The BND in Germany was, they got caught, WikiLeaks revealed this, hiding the information from their own parliamentarians about their illegal spying so they could continue to work with the NSA. These security arrangements have nothing to do with security. This is an empire and they're about control. And so the final piece about empire I'll say is upcoming here in Washington on April 15th, uh, you know, some of us who work with the Answer Coalition, we're hosting two activists. They flew all the way here from South Korea um, and they're fighting against the THAAD, um, which is allegedly a defensive missile program, but it's also an offensive missile program. Uh, they've been fighting to get these THAAD missiles and this whole insanity around, you know, sort of missile curtains out of Korea. Uh, it's a big fight over there. It's an important fight. Almost no one in America knows or understands this issue. I've got some flyers, come see me afterwards. Um, I think it's a very important thing that not only we support these activists, but that we really start to educate people in America that these missile defense shields um, are really offensive. Uh, and that's why China and Russia see them that way, because that's the reality of the situation. Thank you. Thank you to all of these speakers, and thank you to all of you for coming. You've been listening to Other Voices, Other Choices, podcast number nine. This episode is Remembering Past Wars and Preventing the Next, part two, and is the second half of an event which took place in Washington, D.C. on April 4, 2017. You can find a video of the entire event on my blog, OtherVoicesOtherChoices.com, and at the YouTube channel of the same name. You can find the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. The moderator for this event was David Swanson of World Beyond War. I'm your host, Wilton Vaught. Thanks for listening.